Hey, welcome back, storytellers. This is your host, Yin Chang. So I know we're in really strange times right now, and our publishing schedule hasn't been as consistent. Because of the times that we're currently in, I have been taking care of quite a few things, and one of them being a relief efforts hub that my girlfriend and I, we provide meal assistance to the elderly and the underserved in the Chinatown community and the Asian communities in New York. Thank you so much for all of your support that I've received, your messages, your social media posts, telling me to keep going and to keep pushing with these relief efforts. And it means so much to know that you have my back and that you have so much love and support for the mission that I'm currently focused on. For everyone who's been listening to 88 Cups of Tea and catching up on previous episodes, if you've been enjoying our show and haven't yet hit the subscribe button and submitted a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to do so. Not only do I love reading your reviews, but your reviews also give new listeners a glimpse of what to expect from our episodes. I'm so grateful to each and every one of you for taking the time and thank you to those of you who already left a review. On that note, I want to shout out Never Told to Write, who wrote us a review that said, A fun, high-energy listen with in-depth interviews with your favorite writers talking craft, career, and life. I listen while walking my dog and the hour flies by. This is a must for all aspiring writers. I guarantee you'll leave with a smile on your face and a new commitment to your writing every time. Thank you so much for that incredibly thoughtful review. It warms my heart that we were able to put a smile on your face and truly brings me so much joy. Now for today's episode, I want to thank our friends at Vermont College of Fine Arts for supporting our work as the go-to community for storytellers. We teamed up with VCFA's MFA in writing for children and young adults, and we created a thoughtfully curated series of podcast episodes and personal essays to provide you with as much value as possible to help you along your writing journey. Over the last few months, the alumni and faculty from VCFA's MFA in writing programs have been sharing their intimate stories about the life of a writer, from topics exploring the art and the heart of writing, to overcoming imposter syndrome and breaking out of creative blocks, to actionable step-by-steps on improving your craft. These stories will guide and uplift every storyteller in our community, and they've already been resonating deeply with so many of our storytellers. So if you haven't had the chance to check out our series yet, be sure to head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash category slash VCFA and read the newest articles written by Lori Morrison, where she unpacks what to do when you fall out of love with your novel. Head over to vcfa.edu to learn more about Vermont College of Fine Arts. We have literary agent Linda Camacho in today's episode. Linda has a bachelor's in communication from Cornell University and an MFA in creative writing from the Vermont College of Fine Arts. She's held various positions at Penguin Random House, Dorchester, Simon & Schuster, Writer's House, and Prospect Agency. Now at Galt & Zacher Literary Agency, Linda is looking for middle grade, young adult, and adult fiction across all genres, especially upmarket, women's fiction, romance, and literary horror. She's also seeking select graphic novel writer-illustrators. We kick off our conversation talking about how growing up, watching horror movies sparked her love for storytelling and inspired her publishing career. We then dive into her journey breaking into the publishing world and all the different roles she had up until she became a literary agent. From this conversation, she shares how crucial it is to uplift your community, to not take any opportunities for granted, to be relentlessly persistent in your creative pursuits, and to know your worth. Further into our discussion, we talk about how to create lasting diversity in publishing by uplifting marginalized creatives and making space for more voices. And later, Linda chats about her wonderful experience getting her MFA in creative writing and Vermont College of Fine Arts and how her degree helped strengthen her skills as a literary agent and also help her communicate better editorially with her clients. She then dives deep into how to improve your query letter and shares common mistakes that new authors make trying to navigate the publishing industry and steps you can take to avoid those same mistakes. 
Linda also shared an exemplary query letter that caught her eye just for our 88 Cups of Tea community. And you can download this bonus content over on her show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash Linda dash Camacho. Be sure to also catch her Instagram story takeover on our Instagram by heading over to instagram.com slash 88cupsoftea. A quick note before we jump right into our conversation. This interview was recorded back in February 8th, so you might notice that some topics are not as timely for our current situation that we're in. However, the content is classic in that it's inspiring and helpful as ever. Now let's jump right in. Hey, Ann. Hey, Linda. <laughs> let's jump right in. I'm so pumped. How did you first fall in love with storytelling? Ooh, well, I would say I, I definitely started reading early. I think like most people in publishing. However, my mom introduced me to movies at a very young age. Actually, I grew up on horror movies. She's like not the person that you would invite to a book club, right? Because it's like super literate and like blah. You know, she wants horror. She counts how many people have gotten killed in a movie <laughs> to fully think, you know, is it worth watching the movie? So I probably at an inappropriately young age was watching horror movies like Nightmare on Elm Street <laughs> from the time I, before I could talk. So I think that was a thing. Oh I think that's probably what <laughs> kick-started my love of storytelling. And then of course the reading came in and I adore it, but it would it probably started with movies for sure. What? I don't understand <laughs> how you did not have nightmares growing up or maybe you did because I watched uh, horror stuff with my best friend growing up who's my cousin two years older and it was Nightmare on Elm Street as well, Freddy Krueger, Chucky and oh my god I could not shower on my own. I'd have to drag my grandma and sit her down with me as I'm showering since I was five years old. I was so scared. Till this day I'm scared of horror movies and also I'm very superstitious. So I do I'm like oh my gosh I don't want to see like not going any ghosts. So that's me. Yes I feel that. I think it's maybe an, I don't know if it's an ethnic thing maybe okay it's kind of silly. I do get scared a little bit. Even I don't know if, if my tolerance has waned over the years but I definitely will watch stuff and, and I'm so dumb. I will watch also, you don't definitely don't do this if you get nervous, but I go to YouTube and when I'm bored, I'll just go, oh, like give me real horror. Oh no. What is wrong with you? No. And yeah, like I truly, I think it also my parents, you know, my dad came from Puerto Rico when he was a, a young and, and he talked about things they've seen. And you know, I think, you know, my grandmother is very sensitive to certain things. I have somewhat, not too much, thankfully, but I do get nervous. Like you can speak things into reality. So mm -hmm. even then I try to be careful and it's kind of, it makes me laugh too. Cause when you see like movies or I know like usually sorry, white girls, they'll pull out the Ouija board and place. I'm like, no, nope. no, no, that shit really works. Nope. I'm not messing with that. So no to Ouija boards from the horror films and everything. <laughs> How did you then weave your way into where you are today because I know we have a special like this is a very special interview today I know this is through our VCFA partnership and yes. what I find really incredible is that you got your MFA in creative writing from VCFA so I need to hear did you have originally <laughs> a love for writing yourself or you knew always that you wanted to be a literary agent and you want to do both like I need to hear like from day one Oh my gosh. It's such a long winding story too. So, okay. <laughs> I've always loved stories, but again, I, I think it's never a thing I realized was a career. And I'm, I know you've heard this many times. I mean, it's not yeah. something you really think about as a, and especially, you know, I'm among the first in the family to go to college. So there are expectations. And, mm. you know, my mother was really strict about it. Like she was so loose about so many things. She was just, look, you better get your straight A's. Mm. If not, you know, hell to pay. So, yes. uh, you know, I definitely tested that a couple of times. Never again. I yes. learned <laughs> very much, very quickly. And so uh, I went to this prep school, all girls Catholic school in the Upper East Side. It was, you know, super strict. Oh, and wow. then I, I went to college, Cornell University. And, and all of this time, I I really thought I was going to do something practical. You know, I didn't know what. I mean, I really thought about it for years and years, even through senior year of college. I was definitely not going to do med school. That was way too much studying. And then for five minutes, I was like, maybe I'll get a PhD in like psychology. <laughs> I don't know. Or I, you know, thought about law school, which tends to be the thing that people generally fall back to or business school. So all of those things, I became an expert at 
figuring out how to apply for them without actually doing it. So I, you know, helped people do it, but I didn't do it. So in the end, when I was at school, so my mother worked in banking. She had worked herself up from a teller years ago. She had never gone to college, but she was working with somebody who's also a person of color and her daughter had attended Cornell like years before me, like she's 10 years older. And her daughter also liked to visit campus. So they said, hey, you guys should meet up and become friends. And we actually did meet up and become friends. And this person, her name is Nicole. She was like the super head honcho HR person for Morgan Stanley. And again, I was not into finance, but we would sit down together, talk about life and career. And she was like, Linda, you know, you're always talking about books and, and stuff like that. I was like, I I didn't even realize I did that. She said, I was on a panel with this person who was doing also diversity recruitment for Penguin. And I was like, oh, all right, maybe I should apply for this thing. So, and again, when you think of publishing, people usually think of editorial. Mm -hmm. So, of course, what did I do? I applied for like an editorial assistant position at Penguin on the adult side. And I did get called in for the interview. But then the day before they called me and said, oh, I'm sorry, it was taken internally as those things tend to happen a lot. Mm. But the recruiter, her name was Francine Rosado. She said, hey, you know, you're talented, all that stuff. Why don't you come in for this other position, which was something called reprint production. I had no idea what it was. I was like, yes, I will come in for that. (laughs) So I went in the next day and the person interviewing me was also a Puerto Rican from the Bronx. We got along so well and it just clicked. Right. And then I, um, on the way home, I got the call, you know, you you got the job and I believe my starting, Oh, what was my starting salary? I want to say, oh, it was like $28,000. This was 2005. So yeah, about $28,000, which at the time was considered quite a bit of money, <laughs> especially for publishing. Right. So I actually did the back end of things. So reprint, you know, reprint production, it just means any book that's been out in the world, you know, the actual printing process of it coming out, being reprinted, that's where the kind of the money makers are. But I was there a year and I loved my boss. I didn't love, love the job. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My boss, who's still in publishing, I I adore her. Her name is Vanessa. She was 27, I was 22, and she was very old and worldly and wise to me. And she said, you know, Linda, you should consider law school because that's what I always wanted to do. And I was like, yeah, me too. Not even realizing how many people have thought of this. It's not exactly a unique idea, but (laughs) you know, when you're kind of miserable, you're like, yeah, let's do this thing. So I remember too, I was shelving and again, I'm superstitious. So I was shelving books and a book fell on my head and it was like, how to get into law school. I was like, this is a sign. (laughs) I need to go to, I'm going to law school. Yeah. So I quit <laughs> and I'd done just under a year at the job. Thank God I lived with my parents who just, I'm sure, didn't know what to do with me. They're like, okay, whatever makes you happy. I'm sure they were secretly kind of happy about it. I remember dropping like $1,400 on a Princeton review class. I took the LSAT twice, did, yeah, all right. <laughs> I got my letters of recommendation. And at the side, I was like doing side jobs just to like pay some bills. Mm, yeah. But, you know, at those jobs, there were no books anywhere. Like when I was working at Penguin, they have shelves and shelves of books. They call them the take shelves. And, and I was like, where are the books? This is the most depressing thing I've ever seen. So I was like, you know what? I actually do miss publishing. And this is around 2007, 2008, about a year or so after I'd kind of left. And I was like, you know what? It's going to be easy to get back in. Oh, my God. You know, youthful arrogance taught me. (laughs) Don't do that. So I applied and applied. I could not get a job. Um, I was too overqualified, apparently, for entry level. But in the end, I actually took internships, (laughs) unpaid most of them to get back in. And again, I was only able to do that because I was living with my parents. Not everybody has this privilege. Mm. So I wound up doing, it was my first front end job at the small press called Dorchester Publishing. And then I rotated doing like every department. After that, of course, I'm still applying for jobs the whole time, but no luck. So I did another internship. It was at Simon & Schuster Children's Books. That's where I kind of started going into that route to the marketing side. Then I also did an internship at Random House on the editorial side. Wow. Still no jobs. And then I saw that there was, and I don't even know how many interviews I'd had, but I saw there was a position that they had at Writer's House for an internship. So I definitely got that, which was great. There was a small stipend. And that's kind of what 
planted the idea of potentially agenting. So I was there for a good four or five months. And then thank God, eventually Random House took pity and hired me. (laughs) And um, I bothered everybody enough. It made me aggressive which carries over to now. It's very helpful. That's very good. Yeah. <laughs> you lose shame when you need a job, right? Yes. So I wound up doing children's marketing at Random House. So I worked on like picture books and middle grade and YA, all of the things. I was there for five years. And in the middle of that, I took advantage of some tuition reimbursement. And then I got my MFA and children's writing at the Vermont College of Fine Arts at the same time. And I loved, loved my time there. And By the time I left, I knew I was ready to move into agenting. You know, I I had applied internally for editorial roles, right, just to see what I could get. But it was hard. And people knew me and they, you know, were up front with me. They're like, Linda, you know, you'd be good for this, but you're kind of, they were very kind about this, but they said I was a bit older, which was 28 or so. (laughs) Are you joking? 28 is so young. What are they talking about? I wish I were, and I can't claim to have been the perfect fit for every job, but it tended to be, I wasn't 22 and coming out of college or 21. So I was like, man, this is tough. Either way, I was like, you know what? I think agenting might be better for me, not because it was easier, but I liked the idea of the flexibility of it. I wasn't bound to an imprint and I wasn't sure if I was a nine to five person anyway. So I was like, let me try this. It took me a while just to get that foot in the door because I did, I don't even know many interviews just to to talk to people and get you know advice. And so many agents were so kind to me just to give up their time to talk to this person, me, who was just clueless about the world. And eventually, though, someone did offer me a job to come on as an agent. It was this boutique agency called Prospect Agency. And the head of that agency used to work at Writer's House. So it's kind of a small world, right? Yes. And I was there, got some great mentorship. And then I became friends with this agent named Marietta Zacker, who's also a Latina in the publishing world. And we just gelled. We just became friends. And I bugged her enough in terms of her advice that she's like, let's just make this official. So I eventually moved over to Galton Zacher Literary Agency, where I've been for two years. And so agenting five years, but publishing 15 years and that accidental falling into it. Wow. I took so many things away from this. Asking for what you want. It's so freaking inspiring. Like, (laughs) damn, Linda is a badass. (laughs) Okay. What do you think, just hearing yourself talking about from day one till now, fast forwarding, like what was the biggest lesson that you learned that you took away with you that you're using today at the literary agency? Oh man, that's such a one, the biggest one. I would say, first of all, it it really comes back to two things that you said, but I'll start with the first. You have to be persistent. You know, I think in general with the space, whether you are someone looking to get into publishing through the professional side, or you want to be someone who's published, and that's kind of another professional angle, you really can't give up. If you really, really want this, you cannot stop. And people might go, oh, it's easy for you to say, but I can tell you right now, Throughout this journey, there have been so many times where I'm like, I just, I can't do this. I'm not going to, I'm over this. But I kept asking myself, well, what are you going to do now? (laughs) I honestly felt like there's truly no other thing I really wanted to do. So I didn't have a choice in, in my feeling. I just felt like I kept getting told no so much that I've gotten used to it. And it's, it stings a lot less the more you hear it. And that's why I can also Mm. empathize with anybody, even with people I reject. And I hate using that word, but if I pass on their work, I try to be very optimistic and positive because it's a subjective thing. And it doesn't mean I'm passing on you and that you're crap. None of that. I always say, look, subjective. I feel like you keep pushing at it. You'll get there. And many people have. Yes. Oh my gosh. Ooh, I just got chills. Thank you. And I'm like, my heater is on. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yep. It's definitely Linda. Um, she is giving me the chills. What do you take most pride in with your position where you are right now, especially knowing we are in a day and age where there is more space for inclusive storytelling and you having an active position an active role in contributing to that. Yeah. Whatever that comes out intuitively just from what you heard from my end, I would love to hear because I just I'm so inspired by you and your work and just seeing your work ethic and just who you are, how you grew up. It's just we need more champions like you 
in this space in the world because it affects the world indirectly and directly it mm-hmm. and it's widespread it's a global kind of business when you think about it and a cultural impact too so knowing all of this knowing that you do contribute and you do make an impact where are you right now when i say that and how does that make you feel like and what are your thoughts about that just reflecting on it sure it's always a complicated feeling you know where I'm happy to be able to do what I feel is the little I've been able to contribute, right? I I know as a child, I always, you know, wanted to see certain things. I mean, for instance, I, I'm a fat person. And even when I saw a fat character, I would get so excited and I didn't understand what that meant, right? right. So I knew for me that was interestingly the diversity, the marginalized group that I associated myself with most for a long time because I am Puerto Rican. I grew up in the Bronx. I definitely have a lot of privilege. And I always acknowledge that. I worked very hard. However, this is not a thing you can do on your own, no matter Mm. where you come from. And other people do have way more difficult struggles than I. So I really do try to uplift people, not just in terms of marginalized creators. I think right now we're seeing a surge and I think it's absolutely wonderful. I'm excited about that. However, it is not sustainable unless we have people on all sides who have marginalized backgrounds, right? It just isn't because otherwise you're still in that echo chamber of the same people in the same room making the same decisions who might in the future go, oh, you know, that diversity trend, that was a good one. And we've moved Mm -hmm. on. I don't want Mm -hmm. that to happen. I know there are some people who do see it as a trend and I want to get them out of that by making this something that is very lasting. And we can only do that by having that support all around. We need our allies and Again, even in terms of the things I used to see, and it's just a short time. I know people have been in the business way longer than I, but when someone brought it to my attention, it was at VCFA. One of the instructors is Matt Pena at the time. And he was like, hey, Linda, so for your writing, are you putting Latinx characters? And I said, no, <laughs> I'm not doing that. I mean, that just wouldn't sell. Mm. And you know, what's very interesting to me is nobody had said that to me, but where was I getting that from? Right. There's clearly something in the room that I'm picking up that would indicate that a Latinx story, black, brown, whatever Asian American story is considered niche. Mm. And I didn't realize, because again, we're all swimming in the same water that we had a diversity problem. So it was only after that they brought up to me, I was like, really, we have a problem. And then I realized later oh yeah, (laughs) we really do have a problem. And then it just makes you angrier and angrier when you realize this is an issue that it's not new, but you become more aware of things. You become more sensitive and I'm still very much learning. Yes. And again, I think I really try to help out where I can. I cannot save everybody. I think that's the the guilt as well too. There's only so much I can do as one person. Mm. Thankfully, I'm not in it alone. There's so many people who are doing the work and who have been doing it for a long time. I mean, even one of my colleagues, Beth Phelan, who had started DV Pit, Mm. um, has done tremendous work on her own time with uplifting marginalized creatives. Mm. And even people who are more in the background, right? You have some people whose names you can instantly recognize like Beth's. You have other people like Marietta Zacker, who is the co-agency head. She has done amazing work in the background. Again, uplifting certain voices and doing things like she's part of We Need Diverse Books. And there's so many people doing a lot. And I just hope that it continues and more people join us and Again, I don't want this to be a trend. So that makes me a little nervous sometimes. Yes, yes. With VCFA, how do you feel like your time there, do you see how it's tied in with how you approach your work or how does it affect you overall? Maybe it could be in different ways that I am not aware about. Sure. I think going into it was a very unique experience. It was such a wonderful time. You know, it's interesting too, when they send them my way to talk to someone about going to VCFA that they've gotten accepted, I never give them the hard sell in the sense of, you know, it can only be published if you've gone to VCFA. I will never say that because that's flat out not true. Yes. Again, it it goes back to privilege. If you can afford to take out some loans and and spend time doing this, the upside of it is that it's a low-res program that you can do simultaneously while working. But again, you still have to take two weeks per semester to go up there, focus on your writing, And it's lovely to have that time, but not everybody can do that. So 
But if you can, if you can do that, I really loved it. I met so many wonderful people. I had amazing classmates. And one of them, for instance, was Evie Zaboy, who's now like this amazing writer. Yeah, that's cool. She's done okay for herself, I think. Um, (laughs) But you bond so closely with your people, especially with your class. You really have a tight bond even at the end of those 10 days, which sounds kind of absurd, but it's such a reality of it. And it's just helped me in so many ways. So even with just my career, which I really am living the dream, right? I, I do write a little bit. I am great at procrastinating. So I very much sympathize with all of my clients and deadlines (laughs) and things. I, I don't know if I could do that. Like, it's just so much work and so much of your heart and soul that you're putting down. And it's just flat out hard to do. I mean, you're staring at a blank page every day. So I give props to everybody who's out there living the creative life. For me, besides the empathy that it gives me, it's just an amazing sense of community, right? I think that even VCFA, of course, yes, they are still very white. They are trying to increase their diversity. You know, they are trying to be more inclusive. They are providing scholarships. So they are making strides, Mm -hmm. small, but but steady. Mm -hmm. In terms of other things, though, I just try to help where I can. So whether it's somebody I haven't taken on as a client, because I like to give feedback where possible. I can't do it for everybody. That's the thing. That's where the frustration comes in. But the reason I went to VCFA was not necessarily so I could be like an amazing writer and write all the best-selling books. I really did it with the intention to become even better editorially at my job. Mm -hmm. And that way I could have the language of communicating what might not work as opposed to me going, yeah, that works. And I I can still do that. There's sometimes you don't know what's wrong with a project, but at least in terms of guiding my clients, I've become a lot stronger editorially. So that is a big bonus. And plus the sympathy, I fully get it. So, and again, every good agent will do this. You know, we're kind of that ear slash psychologist, you know, just listening to your, your poor clients vent or, and (laughs) and sometimes they just get a good vent session and then they get back to what they need to do. Or, and again, I'm not the only agent who does this too. We understand that writers are not people who are just machines who are creating this product, you know, that Mm. we care about you as an individual and want you to be healthy and thriving and all the things on top of being able to create. So There's so many angles, but I will say even just on a career side, I made even more connections for sure. I also even had my first sale for one of my classmates, which was kind of hilarious because I was not even trying to do that. It was this one of my classmates. I sold her middle grade like a month into being an agent, which was amazing. Oh my God, look at you. (laughs) Yes, it's called Linda Magic. It was really lucky. She was afraid to kind of query. And I was like, I wasn't even trying to like scope her out in that way. I was just, look, I'll give you feedback. And then I read it and fell in love. And I'm like, (gasps) actually, I want to represent you and bless her. She took a risk because like she was like my first client. (laughs) So she definitely took a risk. And how lucky is she to have had you in her class? For sure. I feel really lucky. No, she's so lucky to have you. Oh my gosh, Linda. That's insane. Okay, you know, being a loyal 88 Cups of Tea listener who I just adore, you know that at the end, we usually weave in listener questions, right? So I realized, so I jumped in and checked. I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish I passed the mic basically to Sherry Kramer. She's one of our listeners because she basically asked what I asked, except she asked it in a much clearer way. (laughs) Sherry Kramer said, thank you for always bringing in a rich array of voices and experiences. I'd love to hear from Linda how her MFA is utilized in her day job. That's a good word to use, utilize, yes. (laughs) Does it deepen her experience with editors? Did it broaden her reading repertoire so that she is more open to unique writing styles? Yes. So I didn't talk about this too. Well, so again, with VCFA, it's very self-directed. Like if you're a person who's going in and you go, I want to get better at writing middle grade mysteries, then you would craft a syllabus of some kind with your advisor to target that aspect. So for me, interestingly, even though I was at the time working at Random House, I was at marketing children's books across the spectrum. I was very intimidated by picture books. They are very (laughs) hard to do, very hard to do well. And I think a lot of people have this concept that they're just so easy because they're so short, but it's harder to write. I think those things are the hardest things you could possibly write. So because I was intimidated by it, I was determined to learn more about it. And I did this whole semester where I focused on nothing but picture books. I don't think I could ever write one. I'm not super good. I'm actually pretty terrible at it, but 
I wound up being able to understand what makes this picture book work. And again, it does go back to having the language and craft in addition to, of course, having to read because you had to read at least 25 picture books a month and then write annotated bibliographies about them. It wasn't just me wow. burning burning through them and going, yeah, because you could sit down and skim through 25 picture books, but you have to go what works, what doesn't work and break it down on top of writing craft essays. What? It was a really intensive, intensive, oh, painful, I wonderful bow semester. bow down to you. <laughs> And I'm so glad I did it because even when I moved into officially agenting, that was a thing I was afraid of doing. I was like, you know what? I'm going to focus on middle grade and YA. And I also do some adult. But <laughs> I went to a conference and somebody queried me, you know, and I'm, I'm great at, you know, editorially getting in there and digging in, see what works or not. But I really liked their stuff. But I told her, I said, you know what, I, I don't represent picture books, but let me at least give you this feedback. And she did incorporate that and it wound up selling to Candlewick, which was so amazing. Wow. And interestingly, for like the year that we hadn't been in touch, I just kept thinking about her. She just kept coming into my mind and I just randomly reached out to her. I'm like, hey, you know, I'm like ready to take this dive if you're not represented. And she's like, oh my gosh, I'm not represented. But it was because of your notes that I was able to sell this book. And we actually teamed up and we've sold more books together. So wow. it is kind of funny how that works. And you just never know, right? And even and because of that, diving into the thing that makes me a little scared, I was also a fan of graphic novels even years ago. Oh. And I hadn't actually handled them, but I knew I had a love of them and I was willing to learn. And I had, you know, I asked questions and I know people, but you know, also it's hard to get someone to take a risk. And I totally get that. But I wound up getting my first client, Wendy Shu. She's amazing. We wound up selling mooncakes together, which came out this year. But last year, you know, it's this queer paranormal romance. And I just loved it so much. And when it works, it works. And now it's just been years later. And I cannot believe how many things I'm representing and how varied my taste is. And, you know, cause I kind of go in, I, I represent anything that's a good story, which doesn't help anybody at all. I'm sorry when they're trying to figure out what I like. <laughs> I've sold things from like a Puerto Rican YA horror to the more beautiful supernatural love queer stories to picture book poetry, and then, of course, graphic novels about a quinceañera. So you just get, like, random things, but it's just stuff that I love, and thankfully I've been able to do something with them and get them out into the world. Yes, I love that. Okay, I was going to say, I guess that means maybe we skip out on the next two questions because we <laughs> had one from Melissa C. who was like, hi, Linda, I would love to know what is currently on your manuscript wish list for YA. And I'm like, oh, wait, hold on, but Linda loves everything. And I guess with Melissa's question, you kind of already answered it because she mentioned she was looking forward to querying you in the spring. It seems if her own voice is YA contemporary romance is a good fit for you, so I think she's just trying to figure out if it's yeah. in the realm of that would be something that you would lean towards. But it sounds like really it's so varied. Actually, I was thinking to myself, I need to, because other editors have done this, so I'm totally stealing their idea, <laughs> where they've done uh, Pinterest pages on things that <gasps> so they smart. have acquired or things they wish they had acquired. I think I'm going to do that. I was thinking of doing it within the next couple of weeks because... I really, even when I'm looking at my taste, I know that there are certain threads that I do have. Like for instance, I really love amazing sister stories. Like mm -hmm. I, and that was the first thing I sold. And I sell a lot of things that I didn't realize kind of revolve around certain themes, right? I love amazing sister stories, found families. And it's funny because it's varied even that way. So again, sorry, but love stories, right? So it can be, I think every great story is a a love story, but it just depends. It's not necessarily what you think of in terms of romantic love. You can have that. I love things like rom-coms. And I also represent the adult romance author, Adriana Herrera, who did American Dreamer, where it's male-male um, romance and a food truck and all the, you know, food stuff I definitely love as well. It's very steamy. So I go for that. But I also love family stories where people love each other in that way. So it's mm. super varied. I love, and again, super broad. I love a good, sweet romance. I also love chilling horror where it's, you know, like my favorite movies are things like Pan's Labyrinth. I love that mm. stuff. Or I'm looking also for adult women's fiction and I'm doing 
all of these things. I'm still in the mood for graphic novels. I've been selling a lot of those recently, but YA has been trickier these days, but for good rom-com or romance, yes, please. Yes, I will do that. That is very helpful. Okay, so now jumping into Brie Bonomo's question, what is the most common reason for passing on manuscripts? And do you have suggestions on how writers can improve their queries first pages when they're getting form rejections? Thank you. Oh, yeah, those are big questions. I guess to start with the query, and I do sympathize because it isn't easy to, you're basically in your mind trying to encapsulate your whole story. Mm. And that's actually a mistake, right? You're not trying to tell me your whole story. When an agent named Kristen Nelson had mentioned, within the paragraph where you're describing what it's about, you're kind of looking at the first 30 to 50 pages, right? You're talking about the character. You're indicating what we call the desire line. What do they want? What's at stake? What's getting in their way? Because all of those things are answering the question. And of course, the inciting incident, which happens early on. If you try to jumble your whole book in there, it's just impossible. And it's going to read like a book report. But I always recommend for people to look at the flap copy on books, right? They don't necessarily give it all away. That's one thing. Don't give away the ending because already you've just given me something where, oh, I know the ending. I don't need to read anymore. I'm good. Mm, Right? That's the thing like where it becomes too book reporting. You want to entice me to read. And then the other side of it is where you give me too much. And again, I know it's so hard to find balance. The other side is when you're too vague, right? So again, I also love YA fantasies and things like that. But if you are relying too heavily on just the tropes, which of course I'm looking for, because that's why I'm reading the book. But if you're not just showing me how this is like what's out there on the market, but how is it different, right? Why should your book be out in the world next to these books? If you're just repeating what's already been said, it always has to have something unique. It also has to be very specific, right? Because if you're just saying things like, the character is a princess who has these powers and they need to save the world, that can describe so many books that, yes, I adore, but it's been done before. So if I'm reading query after query where it has that kind of generic trope that you're not giving me a little extra something, I'm likely to pass, right? I do try, and again, it's really hard because I'm usually pressed for time, and that's actually not a majority of my day. I usually try to squeeze in query reading at the end of the day, and I try not to be grumpy. <laughs> it's really hard because <laughs> I'm tired. And when I find that I'm in a grumpy mood, I go, I need to be fair and I will change, you know, I'll maybe do something else. But again, it is subjective. I always recommend try not to drive yourselves crazy with trying to do the perfect query letter. I think when you're initially going out, go out in batches to agents, right? And it's kind of a like, oh, testing this batch. Let me say you do the first five. And then you wait a little bit. If no one's responding, do another five. Wait, wait, wait. No one's biting. That's something you might want to review. If nobody's even at least requesting pages, there's something probably not right about what you're pitching. It could be in the hook. And again, that's what makes it so hard. And every answer, basically, I just want to tell people, every answer to every publishing question is, it depends, which again, helps no one, right? Yes. I have some query letters that have stood out to me. But for the most part, for me and for other agents, again, I can't speak for everyone, but I generally will notice a really bad query, like terrible, like you just never even looked at a query before. Or if you did an amazing query. But for the most part, I will acknowledge that even a lot of people I've taken on have written perfectly fine queries, (laughs) which don't fall on either camp. It all lies in the pages. Okay, you open Pandora's box. Do you, by any chance, have the top query letters that did stand out to you? Oh, yes. That you can read to us or share with us? And it just makes it more enjoyable for everybody, literary agents and writers all around. (laughs) So thank you for this. Yeah, sure. Well, actually, one of my former colleagues at Prospect Agency, who is now at Loradale Literary Agency, her name is Carrie Pastrito. She's also, I'd love to really give a shout out to all of my agents of color because we all know each other and we're friends. She has really good blog posts about revisions for query letters. You know, I also recommend Query Shark, but, you know, I have a soft spot for Carrie. She does really great work. So thank you. We'll have that linked in your show notes page. We will make sure to have that linked. Thank you. By the way, listeners, Linda's so kind, very generous. Generous. 
she's very open to sharing the query letters, the exemplary query letters with you all. So make sure you head over to her show notes page and so that you can scroll down, download the PDF just to have an idea and how to see the formatting and the small little nitty gritty details. And Linda, I'm excited. We'll just get into what stood out to you and kind of annotate along. So if anybody, if you're at your computer or you're on your phone, go ahead and download it and like pull it up. So you're looking and reading along so that you understand exactly what Linda is talking about. So Linda, thank you. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. And what's interesting to usually, and again, that's why it's usually rule of thumb, most people will prefer that jump right into the story, right? Sometimes they'll say, start with a hook and usually it'll be jump into the story. And then you go at the end, talk about yourself. That's usually the way. And of course, the one that I'm talking about kind of breaks that rule. So it depends. Sorry about that. Thank you for the side note. That's helpful. (laughs) Just a side note. So for this one, I'll read it. So Dear Linda, to give you some quick background on me, I'm an alumna of the Vermont College of Fine Arts. I'm just skimming a bit. Uh, My first novel, Sister Chicas, co-written with two other Latina writers, was released by NAL in 2006. I tend to write novels with strong female protagonists who are often bi-ethnic, mirroring my own Puerto Rican, Swedish heritage and experience, and with Latino themes. And... This novel came from an idea about a series of horror novels featuring the same lead characters and based on Puerto Rican legends. So I'm skipping down a little bit to the next paragraph. In El Cuco, a self-described gringa Rican, Lupe Davila, escapes her drunken father in small-town Vermont life every summer to spend time with her uncle Esteban, Puerto Rico's police commissioner. Lupe loves her Puerto Rican family, but she feels like she's straddling two worlds and belongs in neither. To top it off, this summer her uncle is dealing with a series of grisly murders, and it's Lupe who sees signs of an ancient evil that her uncle and most adults will just not face. Javier Utiere is one of five friends from a deteriorating neighborhood in Puerto Rico who are being systematically killed on the eve of their 18th birthdays. A recovering drug addict, he is haunted by the slaughter of his friends and while asking questions and looking into the crimes, he meets Lupe. Together, they work to figure out who or what is taking these boys' lives before Javier's 18th birthday arrives. And then she has kind of a short closing paragraph. But I mean, that story really, <laughs> really drew me in. Um, Linda, my mouth is open just from hearing <laughs> your story growing up. I'm like, ah, hello, <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Someone did their research, took the time and respect to do that. And it sounds like she just knew exactly who you are and your upbringing and your childhood. It sounded like she did a podcast <laughs> interview with you and like remembered everything. I'm like, what? Sorry. Okay. I did not mean to jump in, but I just couldn't help my jaw. <laughs> was to the floor. I was like, are you serious? How would you not want to take a look? Sorry. Okay. So now your thoughts. <laughs> it's so well drawn, even in terms of, we always have the own versus conversation, right? Where you don't want to limit people to like, if someone's Puerto Rican, you don't want them to feel, feel limited that they can only write Puerto Rican stories. Exactly. But what I liked about this too, is that she does talk about issues of drug addiction and things that plague the community. However, it's not the main storyline, you know, and this one is Latinx teens who are in a horror novel. And I just love that because I'd love to see things that are a bit more commercial. You know, I also represent literary, but this just really stood out. So it's not just a pain story, if that makes sense, you know? And so she really just nailed it. And, And actually that story we worked on for a long time in terms of edits. And again, you cannot guarantee that those things will sell, but luckily we did. And it came out last June, June, 2019. And it's now called Five Midnights. What a beautiful title. Yeah. And it came out from Tortine and it, they just packaged it beautifully. And even what I love is that the cover was a Puerto Rican illustrator of El Cuco. <gasps> they found it because this person had already what? done it. So they licensed it and it was perfect. <gasps> oh my gosh. Linda, talk about making a splash and really like putting the voices out there and not just in front of the scenes, but behind the scenes, how it ties in with the illustrator as well. I love that because I've been reading a lot, which is so true, like making spaces for illustrators even and more people behind the scenes, marketing and all that stuff. And look, look at this. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing that. We did have 
one final listener question, which I felt like this is a wonderful way to wrap this up. And his name is Benny Long. He said, hi, Linda. What common mistakes do aspiring writers make when navigating the publishing industry? And I think that's the best way to wrap this up, especially with all of your expertise. So if you have anything that you can share with us, I'd so appreciate it. Ooh, another hard one. Hi, Benny. Uh, oh, gosh. The biggest thing. Gosh, there's so many things. I would say taking it really personally. I think that is something a lot of beginning writers do. And again, I completely empathize. Even with the little writing I still do, which is incredibly painful. Oh my gosh, it's painful. I would rather be watching Netflix, but... It's really hard. There's so many things that are wrong with this industry, right? For sure. There is absolutely bias, even by well-meaning people. Actually, that's a majority of our issue, right? The bias tends to stem from the well-meaning nice people. (laughs) So that's a big thing. We definitely struggle with the one-story mentality of publishers, where if they publish a queer love story, they kind of tick that box and they go, oh, we kind of have that. They've gotten better, Mm. but you'd be surprised at some of the rejections that I and my fellow colleagues get. It's very one story minded. So you are struggling swimming upstream. Everybody, you know, it's a saturated market. It's a lot of competition. It really is last person standing. That's why I always talk about persistence. At the same time, I really would say Even though this is not realistic, I I do give a whole talk in one of my sessions about persistence, and I do talk about rejection. And I had majored in social psychology in college, and the idea of rejection is that you can't reason it away. I'm going to ask you to try as much as possible, but you really can't. But try, 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 try. After you've vented your frustrations with getting another rejection and maybe papered the wall with them, try really hard not to take it personally Mm. because there are some people, for sure, there is bias that keeps people out. There are also people who have so much talent, but maybe that's not the story they're going to come out with yet. You know what I mean? Like that might not be it. They might not be technically ready and they just have to keep writing until they get to that point where they are. And it's really hard, right? Because I can easily say, oh yeah, just get over it. I'm not saying to get over it because Mm -hmm. this really is your heart and soul on a page. At the same time, I also try to, and I remind myself of this too, when I get a rejection on behalf of my clients and I go, people are nuts. What is wrong with these people? I I get angry on (laughs) my clients' behalf too, but I do remind myself that that wasn't the person for them, kind of like that just wasn't it. Mm. Maybe in the end, if I cannot sell a project, this wasn't the project and your time will come, right? Because I do remind myself that even when I'm passing on people, it really isn't anything personal. And I pass on a lot of projects that are actually really good, very good, very well written. And I'll say, I think someone's going to publish this for sure. I just don't think I'm the right person to shepherd this. A lot of times, And I can see, I'm like, oh, this is probably just going to get snatched up in a heartbeat, but I am not invested in the way that you would need somebody to be. So just know that it's really subjective and try, try, keep your community around you. That is super crucial. Try not to take too much to Twitter. (laughs) It takes certain amounts of Twitter, but vent to your buddies and keep pushing. Try not to take it personally because in the end, It's so easy to make it about yourself, but in the end, it's kind of this bigger thing because we're trying to commodify art. How do you do that, right? It's still a business, but it's not quantifiable by any stretch. Even though we try, agents and editors, we wish that we knew the answer. If I did, every one of my clients would be a bestseller, but that's just not the case. That was a really long answer. Sorry, but... No, that was so... Linda, you are so kind. Linda, if you have any books that you can recommend, please, can you share any craft books or any like stories? Like I know you love graphic novels. I know you love just all types of stories that you could recommend off the top of your head for our listeners to check out on their own that they can learn and study and grow their craft from. We'll have those listed in your show notes page as well. I really like Blake Snyder's Save the Cat. Yes. I mean, I don't want people to be married to necessarily a screenwriting format, but it really does help you if you're trying to figure out structure and beats. And he really does do that. He's had several books in that vein. He also has the latest one, which is 
one geared towards novelization. So I would say get that one. And it just provides this amazing blueprint that can help beginners. I think it's a good start. Another one, which is very different from it, interestingly enough, is Lisa Cron's Story Genius. And what I love about that book is that Yes, plot is very important. However, if you're a person who finds it really hard to go plot first and you're kind of a pantser in a sense, you still have to figure out character. You have to know your characters before you can progress in any sense, before you know what the obstacles are, what all of that stuff is. And Story Genius really helps you to kind of diagram in a sense who your character is, what they want, and all of that stuff. It's character first. Because again, if if you're like, oh, I don't, I don't know what's the antagonist gonna do next. Well, if you don't know how to answer that question, you have to go back to who the character is and what they want. And then you can figure out kind of how to torture them <laughs> in a sense. So Story Genius is really helpful for that too. Oh my gosh, thank you for that. Linda, I just have to say I seriously enjoyed this conversation with you. Same here. (laughs) Oh my gosh, you have no idea. Please let everyone know where to find you on social media. This has been such a pleasure and joy. Thank you for making my weekend, by the way. No, same here. Um, Where am I in social media? I'm not great at Twitter, but I'm trying to get back on. I'm usually going on there like, yay books and supporting other people. So that's my input there. So I'm at Linda Random because Random House and I got too lazy to change it and I just kept Linda Random. So there's <laughs> that. And I work at Galt and Zacker. So that's www.galtzacker. That's G-A-L-L-T-Z-A-C-K-E-R.com. You can find my submission interests, which again are very broad. Eventually I'll have that Pinterest page up and then I'll share that too. And that wraps up my conversation with Linda Camacho. Linda, thank you so much for being so transparent and sharing your experiences in the publishing world and for sharing such wise advice for any listeners wanting to break into the industry or find a literary agent for themselves. I so enjoyed our conversation and I know our community was so inspired by this. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to stop by and say hi to Linda on Twitter at Linda Random. To download one of her favorite query letters and to find all the resources and books mentioned in her episode, along with tweetable quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout our entire conversation, head on over to Linda's show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash Linda-Camacho. I am so proud to share that we collaborated with our friends at Vermont College of Fine Arts MFA in writing for children and young adults to curate a thoughtful series of personal essays and podcast episodes just like today's episode so that you can feel empowered about the writer's journey. Vermont College of Fine Arts is a global community of artists continuously redefining what it means to be an arts college. They're accredited by the New England Commission on Higher Education, and they offer the Master of Fine Arts degree in a variety of fields, including writing, writing for children and young adults, and writing and publishing, along with an international MFA in creative writing and literary translation. With low residency and fully residential options, VCFA has a graduate program to fit your needs. You can learn more at vcfa.edu. For our specially curated series of essays and podcast episodes I was mentioning right before this, we made sure to share intimate stories about the life of a writer, exploring the art and the heart of writing, and we made sure to include helpful step-by-step articles to improve your writing craft. These stories will guide and uplift every storyteller in our community, and they've already been resonating deeply with so many of us. So if you haven't yet had the chance to check out our series, please be sure to head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash category slash VCFA, and that's 88cupsoftea.com slash category slash VCFA. Have a super productive week. Hope you're all hanging in there and finding some joy in your new day-to-day routines.